Well, good morning again. Welcome. Uh, We've been walking through the book of Judges. Uh, We've made it all the way up into part of chapter 6. Today we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 32. That's Judges chapter 6, verses 11 through 32. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the Bible or you don't have your own, uh, feel free to take one of our pew Bibles there. It'll be our gift to you. And you can find the book of Judges and where we're at on page 170, I do believe, or thereabouts. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the large numbers are going to be the chapter numbers and the small numbers are going to be the verse numbers. And so we're going to be in chapter 6, starting with verse 11. And today we're going to come across uh, one that I have labeled uh, the fearful and cynical farmer. The fearful and cynical farmer. And uh, we're going to see how God will use this farmer to deliver his people. We're going to speak of our section today in two parts. We're going to see a talk and a scandal. A talk and a scandal. Uh, But before we get into the text, uh, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we just pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. That you would melt our hearts. That your word would be as a hammer upon stone. That you would break down any barriers to us coming in here, giving you our full attention and getting to know you more. We're getting to know you for the first time. We pray that your word would be as a consuming fire within us. That it would flame our passion for you, our passion for the gospel. God, help us to love you well. Father, we pray that uh, the words this morning that uh, I would preach would be your words, that those words would be heard. And that which is not from you, I pray would be unheard and be discarded. Father, make yourself great in this time. Glorify yourself through the preaching of your word. We ask it by the Holy Spirit. Amen. So the first part, a talk, a talk, starting with verse 11. Uh, If you remember last week, we uh, saw, we didn't get to quite to Gideon. We saw that the Israelites fell into that cycle again, that cycle of sin, and that they had been oppressed by the Midianites and made to be low. They were made very, very low. And so uh, they don't repent, ultimately, that God sends a prophet and he condemns them. And he says, you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord. And we talked about how God was going to be gracious to the Israelites despite the fact that they had not yet repented. Remember, we looked at Romans and remembered that while we were still sinners, while we were still weak, that Christ died for us, the ungodly. And this is that grace to them. Gideon will be the grace to the Israelites. He's going to be the one that will deliver them. And so it's on the heels of, you have not obeyed my voice. The next verse is going to be God's grace to them. He's raising up a deliverer. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the, Abbe, the Abiezerite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. What a way to start a conversation, right? Just walk up. The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. It's a great conversation opener. You might try it at lunch, see how it goes. Uh, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us. He's given us into the hand of Midian. So we start off with two different characters, this angel of the Lord and Gideon. 
Let's talk about the angel of the Lord first. We have a little bit of an advantage because we've probably, if you're familiar with the Bible, you've seen this character come up a little bit. And if you read ahead in Judges, uh, you got a glimpse of who the angel of the Lord is. Um, But judging by Gideon's response to him, it's not likely that he looked angelic in any way, right? He's not overwhelming in his presence. Uh, He shows up, he says he's a mighty man of valor, and Gideon doesn't like shudder or like, wow, this guy is beautiful or shocking. There's no awe-inspired response to the angel. So Akil and Delich point out that uh, the angel of the Lord was was likely uh, just kind of normal looking, like a traveler uh, that just had a staff and showed up and said, mighty man of valor. And uh, and Gideon uh, doesn't respond uh, in a way that would make us think that he is angelic, even though we know as the reader what Gideon does not. That it's indeed the angel of the Lord. But who is this angel of the Lord? We'd said before that he shows up throughout the Old Testament. And he's always, when he shows up, he's surrounded by this mystery and this tension. His identity seems to be somewhat covered in shadow, right? He is cloaked. His identity is kind of, um, it's just hinted at. We don't really know. We know he's somehow from the Lord, but we're not sure who he is exactly. But even even in our text here, we see uh, things like, the angel said. And then later we see, the Lord said. Is he angel or is he the Lord? What, What does this mean? We kind of wonder until we get down to 14 where we're not there just yet, but we see the words, the Lord turned to him and said, that's the angel of the Lord being called the Lord. I like what, uh, what Keller says here. He says, this is remarkable. This figure is the angel of the Lord and yet also the Lord. What does this mean? This is one of the mysteries of the Old Testament, which is impossible to understand without the new. If there is one God, how can he be both in heaven having sent this visible figure, and at the same time be the visible figure. If this was simply God come in human form, why doesn't it just say the Lord, rather than also one sent by the Lord? The word angel means messenger after all. The only explanation that makes sense is that we have here an indication that our one God is nonetheless multipersonal. We have a deep hint at the things of the Trinity, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There is good reason to see this figure as God the Son. And that his concern, even now, was to bring salvation and peace to his people. We also have Gideon in this text, right? And the angel calls him mighty man of valor. There's a little bit of irony here. It's a little funny to me. He calls him mighty man of valor as he is secretly beating out grain in a wine press. Now, you're supposed to thresh grain. I don't know a whole lot about farming, but I, I believe it's done out in the fields, right out in the open. Uh, and, and the reason that he's doing this in a wine press, that he's beating out the grain in a wine press, is because of the oppression of the Midianites. He's afraid. He's afraid that they're going to come and take his grain. And so he's trying to do it in secret to preserve it. Even now, he's called mighty man of valor. Like, is this is the angel of the Lord... Is he kind of poking fun at Gideon, kind of mocking him? You are mighty men of valor as you hide and beat out the grain in the wine press. I don't know that he's mocking him. If you want him to be, I guess you could read it that way. But I think that God is not mocking, but declaring. He's declaring to Gideon who he is, who he is to become. After all, God created all things by the authority and the power of his word. And his word causes action. His word does something. I believe it's a type of prophecy of who Gideon really is. If God says that Gideon 
is a mighty warrior, then Gideon is a mighty warrior. Look how Gideon responds to this declaration. He kind of sort of says uh, in in our contemporary parlance, uh, maybe in like a text message, he kind of says, LOL. You know, laugh out loud. (laughs) That, yeah, uh, God is going to make me a mighty man of valor. Can you not see that I am beating out grain in a wine press? Things Things are pretty bad. God wouldn't allow uh, the position, this oppression to come if he was really with his people. If he was really with me, there would not be suffering. In fact, this suffering is uh, just the example that shows God is not with us and I am no mighty man of valor. Notice that Gideon is blaming God and is using the suffering of the Israelites, the oppression that comes from the Midianites as proof that God does not care. And it's far off. Don't we do this? When things don't quite uh, go according to how we planned, aren't we really quick to try and blame somebody aside from ourselves or the situation? Immediately jump to, to typically to blame God. Have you ever gotten angry with him and said something that sounds a little bit like, how could you let this happen? Don't you know things would have been so much better if... Some of us even go as far far to say that if God could let this happen, then uh, he certainly is far off. And he may not even exist. Certainly a, a loving God wouldn't allow these terrible things to happen. How do you blame God? How do you assume that he's far off because of suffering in your life? Have you? I do love the angel kind of ignores Gideon's question and presses ahead, uh, which reminds me of how God responds to Job. You know, the book of Job, he goes through all the suffering, and at the end, he kind of finally gets before God, and God says, brace yourself like a man, gird up your loins. And then he just hits him with a bunch of rhetorical questions. If you're reading that book, you're like, man, we're going to find out the reasons for suffering. It's going to be awesome. And then the Lord hits him with, where were you when I hung the heavens? Where were you when I called the mountains into existence. Who are you to question me? And he doesn't answer the question. But as the reader of this story, and the re- if we are familiar with the whole of Scripture, we know that God is infinitely good and infinitely wise. We not, might not be able to point to all the reasons for suffering, but we know this that God is working all things out for our good and for His glory. For our good and for His glory. We also know that, uh, as readers, that the suffering here is actually proof of God's closeness and of his care. It's kind of a discipline of sorts to his people. Uh, It makes me think of maybe a a child speaking back to their parent and the parent disciplining the child uh, because they want the child to grow up and be a respectable person, somebody that shows respect. It's, It's loving discipline, even though it's suffering. You know, I think as, as Americans, we're, we're prone to, to believe in and chase after this uh, ideal of the American dream. We want to chase after comfort and, and lots of money usually. But the gospel calls us to follow one who suffered for our good. It causes us to be refined, to become more like God daily. I love the verse in Proverbs 17.3. says, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. And the Lord tests the heart. Suffering can be a a test of our heart, can it? It can reveal what we really treasure, what really guides and directs our lives. 
How is your heart this morning? How do you respond to suffering? Does it make you bitter? Or does it make you better? Does it cause you to press into the arms of Jesus? Or to flee from him? Yes, things often don't go the way that we want. Or the way we plan them. But God is sovereign. He is in control. And he is working all things out. For our good and for his glory I heard an illustration this week on this principle uh, in a sermon that I listened to, and I'm going to try and share it with you here because I think it's applicable or applicable. Uh, There's a missionary girl in the 1930s, and and she sat. She's a high school girl. She's a teenager, and she sat at a conference. And there was a speaker at a conference. He's talking about missions. And she decided at that moment that she was going to follow God anywhere. She was going to go on missions. She soon found out that it was her heart's desire to go to Asia. And so she spent all her energy to become a missionary. Uh, She learned what she needed in order to go, which, you know, the cross-cultural training, the theological training, all the steps that she needed to take academically. The organization also informed her that the portion of the world that she wanted to go to, uh, for her safety, it would be required that that she had a husband. Otherwise, she wouldn't fit in in the culture, and her being there uh, would be for naught. Asia, if you remember during the 1930s and 40s, was uh, quite a tumultuous place. It was a dangerous place to be. And so she said uh, to the Lord, uh, you know, Lord, I take my hands off of my life. Everyone else is getting ready to pursue, pursue things like their, their comforts and, and great careers. But, but I, I'm going to bypass all of that, and I am going to follow you. I just need one thing from you, the husband part. I got everything else licked. So she goes through high school with this goal in mind. She goes through college with this goal in mind of being a missionary. Seminary with this goal in mind of being a missionary. That's a lot of years, a lot of education. And it's the night before her seminary graduation. She has no husband and no prospects. Some of us have been there before, right? And this is what she says. I sat in my dorm room that night before graduation, an angry young woman. I said to God, I took my hands off my life. I only asked for one thing. How could you do this to me? And she struggled and she wrestled with God. And then she came to a conclusion. She realized that she wasn't miserable because she had taken her hands off of her life and yielded to God. She realized that she was miserable because she never had. Did you catch that? She realized she wasn't miserable because she had taken her hands off of her life and yielded to God. She realized that she was miserable because she never had. She had developed the idea of a heroic life, a noble life, and sought after it. She had said to herself, if I can live a noble life, a heroic kind of life, a missionary kind of life, then I will be a person of worth. God, I've got everything under control. This is my plan. I only need one thing from you. It was the night before her graduation. Her husbandlessness that revealed to her an idol. She wanted control over her life. She wanted to prove her value and her worth by living a heroic life. She was telling God what what he was going to do and what she was going to do. How he could make the type of life that she wanted happen for her. Problem was, she didn't take her hands off of her life. Her plans were not God's plans. 
but it took a, a circumstance to reveal that idol deep in her heart. So let me ask you, what plans have you made under the guise or under the, the veil of Christianity? Where have you said, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z because this is God's will for my life? Without really considering if it's God's will for your life. Where have you blamed God for not letting you accomplish what you wanted? Where have you said to him, how, how, things would be better if, dot, dot, dot. How do you finish that sentence? Things would be great if. What comes after the if for you is likely an idol. Whatever comes after the if for you is something that you are looking to for satisfaction, for life, for joy, instead of Jesus Christ. Things would be great if. What comes on the other side of that if for you? Let me ask you, have you taken your hands off of your life? Perceived suffering is often a grace. It's much like surgery, right? It's painful, but it's for the better. Likewise, God is using Israel's suffering in their circumstance, the oppression of the Midianites, to reveal their deep idolatry and their deep need for a deliverer, their deep need for him. Their suffering is not evidence that he is far off and uncaring, but instead that he is near and that he loves his people dearly. Indeed, God is gracious to his people. Gideon says God is not with him in the people. But in fact, he's standing right there. And he continues in verse 14 saying, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes and an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them to him. And the angel of the Lord God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord reached out with the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. So God tells Gideon to go and save Israel. And Gideon says, can't, I am the weak, weakest of the weakest clan. Can't do it. To which God responds, I know that. You know, I know. I know what's going on. I know what I'm doing. It's kind of reminiscent of what God says to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. It says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And his strength will be made perfect here in Gideon's weakness. It's because he likes to work through the people's weaknesses to show his infinite strength. And God tells Gideon that he is just going to rock the enemy as if it's one person. They're this great multitude of people, but it's going to be like they're one person in a ring with a superior fighter. Maybe Mike Tyson against a fourth grader. It's going to be a knockout. 
Gideon still isn't quite sure that the person he's talking with is God. And so he, he wants to make sure that it is. Thus, he gets together this huge offering. It's a lot of food, right? It's a young goat and unleavened cakes and, and broth. It's a pretty big feast for one guy. So he's taking it to him. He wants to make sure that it's God. And then the angel of the Lord touches it. He puts it on the, on the rock and it burns up, which is significant. This fire uh, throughout scripture is evidence when the offering is acceptable to God. It's a sign of the Lord's favor. So it's a sign to us that Gideon is given the favor of the Lord and that God is not distant, but near. God has not forgotten his people, but indeed he is working all things together in concert for their good. And he's still near this morning. He's still near today. He's still infinitely wise and infinitely good. And he is still accomplishing the purposes of his glory. Now it becomes clear to Gideon in the next verse is that the person to whom he was speaking with was God. Look what, look what it says. Verse 22. Then Gideon perceived that it was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the face of the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. Gideon thinks he's going to die. Because what happens in the rest of the Old Testament is when people get face to face with God, if that happens, they're dead. Boom. So he's like, I shouldn't even be alive right now. What is going on? He's kind of freaking out a little bit. He knows that the holy can't, the unholy can't get into the presence of the holy or it will be consumed as his offering was. He can't believe he is alive. And the Lord kind of calms him down and says, look, it's all right. He speaks peace over him. But as I read this, the question that came into my mind was, am I ready to see God face to face? Are you ready to see God, the infinitely holy one, face to face? I think the answer to that is you're only ready if you know Jesus took death for you on the cross. And that he obeyed perfect for you, perfectly for you in his life. And that you've trusted in him to be your savior in the master of your life. Only if you've taken your hands off of your life and yielded to God, are you ready to see him face to face. Are you? I exhort you, trust him, lest you be consumed. Moving to verse 25, we come to the, the second portion, the scandal. The scandal. Verse 25. The night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here, with the stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town, he didn't do it by day. He did it by night. God tells Gideon that if he's going to lead people out of the oppression of the Midianites, if he must deliver people from idolatry, he must start with his own house. He must tear down the altars of his own town. The idols of his own father. It's a little bit of an awkward situation to tear down your daddy's altars in the backyard, right? 
He's then to use the, the wood from the Asherah, the false god, to burn an offering to the one true God. A little bit of poetic justice there. Gideon does this. He's obedient. And I would like to say he's immediately obedient because he's just filled with fervor to, to do what the Lord wants him to do. Like, I can't wait to obey you, so I'm going to do it right now. But then the text tells us that he does this because he's afraid. Why is he afraid? Look at verse 28. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. He's afraid because he knows how much they love their counterfeit gods. He knows how much they love their idols. They love them enough to kill. They want to kill him for what he's done. Some commentators knock Gideon for this. They're kind of like, he was too scared. He should have waited till the day and, and not done that. But I, I got to hand it to him. Look, if I'm Gideon and I know these people and they love their idols, I'm probably doing it at night also. I just think it's wise, right? They want to kill him for tearing down the idols. Verse 31. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Gideon's father is seemingly some kind of a judiciary figure in the town. And the people come to him and uh, they're saying, we need to try Gideon as a criminal. What he has done is unjust. This is ironic because according to Jewish law, they are the true criminals. They've broken the first commandment. They're the ones chasing after idols. They're the ones that should be treated as criminals. Yet it's Gideon that's brought up on charges. And Gideon's father, Joash, makes a wonderful argument. He says, look, if Baal is really a god, let him contend for himself. You don't need to. He'll do it on his own if he's truly powerful. And then he said, he goes further. He says, if any of you try to touch Gideon before the night is through, you will die. I think that's pretty awesome. Uh, and then Gideon gets this nickname, Jerubbaal, which is a reminder of Baal's impotence and the true God's presence with Israel. Baal isn't able to contend for himself. It's a reminder that idols have no power. Yet this narrative shows us the importance of false gods. Despite their powerlessness, men love them and fight for them. And it's seen as a scandal when you cut them down or when you speak against them. It's as true now as it was then. We love our idols. The list is no surprise. Comfort, money, power, sex, respect, career, image. Maybe even like the missionary girl, the idea of a noble life. The list goes on and on and on. What's yours? We love our idols so much and we're prone to do what Israel did. 
which is just to kind of combine them with our Christianity. Try to have like this, um, this is what's called syncretism, where we just put everything in one pot and say it's all good. God hates it. He demands exclusive obedience. When we do this syncretism, when we combine false gods with a true God, we're really only worshiping him in formality because our, our lives in reality revolve around our idols. A mixed devotion is no devotion. The idols that we mix together with our Christianity are usually really, really hard to see. But that's why they're most deadly. I think of it a little bit like this, and it might not be a great illustration, but have you ever walked through a dark room where it's just pitch black? And, and it, maybe it's a house you're familiar with. You know kind of where all the furniture is in the room. You know where the, that the couch is here, so I need to stay to the left so I don't run into the couch. And that the sofa chair is over here, so I, I need to go this way to, to avoid it. And so the things you're aware of don't pose a real big danger to you as you walk through the dark. Through the dark. But what poses the danger to you are like the crock blocks that your wife and son left out there, right? The toys that they were playing with that you don't know are there. So you can't avoid them. And so you're prone to trip over them and to be hurt. You don't see them and you don't know where they are. And so they're more dangerous to you. You see, the sin in your life that's obvious is dangerous. And hopefully you've taken measures to avoid it. But there are sins, there are idols in all of our lives that we are unaware of. They're the toys in the middle of a dark room. And we're bound to trip over them without noticing. Because we haven't really yielded our lives to Christ. We don't recognize it because we've covered our idols with the gloss of Christian piety. Friends, we must ask God to reveal these idols to us and repent of them. We must ask the Holy Spirit to tear them down. Lest we take the Lord's name in vain. Like weeds hidden in a garden, we must root out our secret sins. Let me ask you, what does your life revolve around? What if you didn't have it or somebody tried to take it from you? Would you kill for? Have you truly taken your hands off of your life? Are you following Jesus? In order to tear down the tyranny of sin in the lives of his people, Jesus allowed himself to be torn down. Gideon was reluctant, but he would soon learn that he is who God says he is. Friends, the same is true of us this morning. Because of Jesus living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died and resurrecting in victory, we can be called friends, daughters, sons of God. We can have peace with God if, as the people would soon follow Gideon, we likewise would just follow Jesus. This is the true scandal. Not that we would tear down our idols, but that the God of the universe would take on flesh, die for us, raised to life so that he could call us friends. What does your life revolve around? Have you taken your hands off of your life? 
Has your suffering made you bitter or better? Can you see God rooting out this sin? Are you becoming holy as he is holy? Are you becoming more like him day by day? Or are you a pretender? Have you combined idols with Christian piety? I ask you this morning, have you taken your hands off of your life? 